0: Welcome to the Josh Scanlon Podcast, my friends. It is 8.30 on Friday, August 17th, August 17th, 2018. Man, does time fly when you're getting old, man. I tell you what, August 17th, I can't believe it. Anyway, we're gonna dive into a good one today. And this is just a QA. and a Every now and again, I'll go through my Quora accounts and I'll just read the Q&As I see on there. And, and I got a bunch of good ones actually lately that I'm gonna share with you. Um, and it's actually a good segue into my book on the tax bond for your retirement accounts as well, um, because I talk about the Roth IRA in that book extensively and how wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, the Roth IRA is for you. And so today we're just going to go over some uh, Q&A that I get on Quora. If you have any questions you want for me to answer uh, for the public at large, uh, fire away. Send me an email at josh at heritagewealthplanning.com, josh at heritagewealthplanning.com. Um, I I don't really have a call-in show. I don't know. how. Yeah, just email it to me. I don't know how else you can get the question to me. I'm not Dave Ramsey. Maybe at some point I'll do a call-in show. um, and Maybe I can do it live on YouTube or something like that. But all right. The drawback about call-in shows that just occurred to me, sometimes you got to think, all right? When people are asking you financial advice, and just to kind of spout off at the hip, like a lot of these guys do on their call-in shows, I'm not so sure I like that now some of these things are are uh some I' don't want to say easy, but easier for some of the some experience, but you know there are some delicacies that delicacies that you have to really understand when it comes like social security planning, Medicare and stuff like that. just to kind of yap without really getting the nuances of various things is, is actually kind of dangerous in my opinion. um so that's why I might not ever do a call in show, but I can certainly you know think about it in advance. so if you want to you know me to answer your question. Uh, email to me and uh, and I'll, I'll answer quickly or I'll I'll dive into it and do some research on it because it's just uh again financial planning is a big deal and if you mess it up that could ha- cost you drastically in the back end and so we want to avoid that so don't just take a you know one and a half ninety second answer from Dave Ramsey or what's that guy's name Rick Edelman and I, I'm not faulting these guys I mean my goodness they've done wonderful wonderful work but. When it comes to complexity of your own financial plan, a 90-second answer from a call in guys, might kind of concerns me. All right. Uh, good question. A good question here. The very first one I saw, and this is what made me think about doing this. How should I decide whether a risk investment, large upside and downside, should be made in a Roth account or a taxable account? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> and, and this is actually – one hundred percent the way to think about this. Now, notice that this person, Alexander, did not ask if he should put it into an IRA. He put it. He asked if it should be in a Roth or a taxable account. So, kudos to Alexander for answering for knowing that it should not go into an IRA first and foremost. All right. So, this is the question that comes to me. Uh, if your Roth IRA should consist of anything that has high growth potential. Anything. Ideally, it should be where your dividends are as well. Now, a taxable account is taxable each and every year. If it pays dividends or if it has a capital gain, you are going to pay tax on said dividends or capital gain if you are beyond the 12% tax bracket. So you got to think about it in three buckets. You have your traditional accounts, your traditional IRA, 401k, that's your tax deferred. Then you got your tax free accounts, your Roth. Some would even put cash value life insurance in there. To some degree, I agree, but really not talk about that. We're talking more about investments. And then you got your taxable accounts, your non qualified accounts, accounts that you have to pay a tax on if they yield a dividend or a capital gain or interest. All right. So when you think about those three buckets, uh bonds should always go, and again, I'm not a fan of bonds, generally speaking, but you know, most of you are going to have some. They should always go in your tax-deferred accounts, without question. Now, that leaves us, like Alexander asked, between the Roth and the taxable account. All right, so if you have, let's say you have an S&P 500 index fund, and you have a, uh, a small cap value index fund, Vanguard, I don't even know the ticker, Vanguard small cap value, or even uh, extended market index. Like USAA USMIX is a USA Extended Market Index, which is the 4,500 non-S&P stocks that are in the Wilshire 5,000 of the U.S. stock market. Kind of confusing, but just remember the S&P 500 plus the Extended Market Index equals a total stock market. That's what it is. All right. So you have the S&P 500 is 500. You have the 4,500 remainder. You add those two together and that's your total stop market. And at Vanguard, the ticker for the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index is VTSMX. VTSMX. So what do you do here? All right. So, in, so if you have those two funds, just using this for example, the S&P 500 uh, index is going to yield about 2.3, roughly, maybe 2.4%. So for every $100,000, you're going to get $2,400 of dividends. Now, because it's an index fund, there isn't a lot of turnover, but there's still going to be about 5% turnover, which means essentially 5% of the portfolio will change every year. That's quite low, but that could be some taxable consequences there as well. All right, so you would want the S&P 500 with a dividends and, and some turnover. In this regard, I'm not all that concerned with turnover because it's pretty low, but if you have a high turnover fund, that has potential for a lot of taxation, i.e., capital gains, and a fund that has dividends or a stock that has dividends, you'd want that to be in your Roth because you don't pay tax on either your capital gain, your dividends, and thus the turnover uh, ratio percentage doesn't matter. So you'd want that fund to be in your Roth to take advantage of the potential for lots of lots of upside, as all equities, all stocks have. And on top of that, you, you don't have any taxation due on your dividends or capital gains. All right. So you'd want anything with a high dividend potential plus potential for capital gains in your Roth for sure. Now, on, you'd want the extended market index in your taxable account. And for a couple of reasons here, and I'm just using these two as an example. Because there isn't much dividends on the extended market index. There's just not. Now, these small companies typically don't pay much in dividends. Now, the index will probably have a few smaller banks that do and whatnot, but they should be rather minimal because don't forget, you have 4,500 holdings in there. So not any one holding is going to be very big, which means 4,500 holdings if you have a small community bank in Columbus, Ohio, That's paying you 2%. You might only own a fraction of a couple shares in there. So you're just not going to get that much dividends off it. Now, you're probably still going to get some, but it won't be that much. So you'd want your extended market index in your non-Roth IRA because it doesn't pay much in dividends. Now, the capital gain stuff is different. There could be some turnover in there, probably a little bit more, frankly, uh, simply because of the uh, aggressive nature of smaller companies. A lot of companies go kaput. A lot of companies uh, gain. And so they'll actually move from the extended market index into the S&P 500 and whatnot. And so there is more potential for tax uh, from a capital gain perspective in the extended market index or a smaller company stock for sure. That's a fact. And so we would like to avoid that. So that would be if you have some stocks, individual stocks you have in mind as opposed to a mutual fund, you'd want those individual stocks. And certainly an ETF would be preferable than a mutual fund anyway. There's just more tax efficiencies with ETF exchange traded funds. So at the end of the day, your more growth oriented stuff with less dividends should be held in a taxable account. Your growth oriented stuff with more dividends should be held in your Roth. Now there's one thing about the taxable account that should not get overlooked when it comes to growth as well. There is something called a step up in basis. All right, so now you buy a, we'll just use USMIX, the extended market index over at USAA for $100,000, and it grows to $500,000 over those 30 years and then you get hit by a bus. What happens now is that that $500,000 you leave to your heirs is completely tax-free. They can sell that thing tomorrow for 500,000 bucks and pay no capital gain tax whatsoever. So that $400,000 of gains that you had. Remember, you started with 100,000 and now it's worth 500,000. That $400,000 of gain is tax-free. It's completely wiped off the map. Obviously, the same thing happened to Roth. Roth is tax-free as well, don't get me wrong. But it's not like that in a traditional IRA. So the $100,000 you have in your traditional IRA, there is something called the IRS. It has this big lien on that property, which means you are taking all the upside uh, risk or downside risk, I should say, by being invested aggressively, but you're only going to get 65 to 70% of the upside, depending on your tax situation. So you're taking all the downside risk, but you're only getting, like I said, a, a, a portion of the upside growth potential because... Money comes out of an IRA will be taxable as ordinary income. So that's another reason why you don't want your higher growth stuff in your IRA. You want your higher growth in the stuff that's more tax efficient to you, Roth IRA, or to your heirs in a taxable account. All right. So I hope that helps there. It's a good question that Alexander asks. And and I'm a big proponent of that. When you look at the bucket, we call this asset location, not asset allocation, asset location. Bonds go in your traditional IRA. Dividend paying gross stuff goes in your Roth and non-dividend paying gross stuff goes in your taxable account. And finally, the more aggressive on the non-dividend paying stuff in your taxable account, the more likely you're going to lose some money, too. All right. So you have one hundred thousand bucks in there it drops to eighty thousand dollars. Guess what you have? You have a twenty thousand dollar capital loss. So now you can sell that eighty thousand dollar position. And you have a $20,000 gain. That stinks, but uh, loss, you have $20,000 loss. That stinks, don't get me wrong. But those $20,000 can be used to offset 20,000 uh, future capital gains until you die or $3,000 a year. It can be offset of, of ordinary income. Uh, that's, so That's a, there's an, an asset to having a loss as well. And you could not get that in the Roth IRA. So the more aggressive, the more risky, there's more benefits uh, on the upside, obviously. And certainly there is more benefits on the downside because you do have a loss potential, which means you can use that to offset other gains or a little bit of income as well. And you can't do that in a Roth. All right. So uh, number two, uh, Mr. Nguyen asks, or Miss Nguyen, uh, you can't tell, but uh, it looks like a miss, actually. If you are starting a new job, are there any reasons you would not roll over your old employer's 401k to the new one? That's a, that's another real good question here. Um yeah, the, the the couple big reasons on that. So the, the answer to this is that you should, most likely. And a lot of people say, but they don't have that many good investment options. I mean, if you just get the big five, and the big five is some government bonds, some corporate bonds, SP five hundred index, small cap index, and then international, you're fine. As long as they're not paying through the roof and fees to the fund provider. Um, you're fine. And I can't imagine too many 401ks are doing that anymore at the risk of being sued under the ERISA stuff, which is Employee Retirement Income Security Act 1974. ERISA regulates all this stuff. And now uh, just it's going to be hard for a, uh, a 401k provider to get away with Huge fees. So at the end of the day, most likely your 401k is going to be adequate for investment options, and it'll be adequate for fees that you're paying. In fact, it'll be probably lower than what you could get on your own because a 401k is institutionalized fees, and you as an individual are independent or an individual, which is you don't get the same discounts as an institution. Now, a couple things. So I, I don't want to ever hear somebody say, ah, the investment options are poor. Eh, if, I, I hardly suspect that's not the case anymore. And I hear that in the th- uh, Thrift Savings Plan for the military and the government employees. Ah, the investment options are TSP or, or shabby. No, they're absolutely, absolutely adequate. In fact, I'd even say more than adequate. Um, the, the fees, that you just can't be in. So given that most likely your 401k will have good fees and a good uh, diversification, mutual funds and other investments you should probably roll your old one to it. Um, And there's going to be, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why here, and then I'll give you a couple of reasons you don't want to. Uh, First, foremost, we just talked about, you're going to be paid lower fees without question. Uh, Secondly, you can consolidate accounts. So that way you don't have to keep track of all these varying accounts that are out there. That's a pain And, and very few people do it religiously. And so you got one account that's out there that you forgot about and it's in bonds and you're like, oh man, and that could have been growing for you. And I think this gets overlooked a lot. When you have a 401k, you can borrow from it and it's tax-free and it is interest-free. I hear you say it's not interest-free. Yes, it is. I'll tell you in just a second why. And so you have access to it tax-free and interest-free and it's still your money. And you can't do that in an IRA. So an old 401k uh, that you roll into a new one, remember, you can borrow up to $50,000 or 50% of your uh, vested value whichever is lower, all right? So you can borrow a 50,000 or 50% of your vested value, whichever is lower. And it is tax-free. The money comes out tax-free. You pay no income tax on that money that you borrow. That's a fact. Now, you don't get a tax deduction on money going back in to pay that loan off. That's a fact too. But I don't, people always get this like, oh, you're putting after-tax money in. yeah, But you're taking after-tax money out. I I just don't get why that's such an issue. So you can have the opportunity to borrow from your 401k tax free up to fifty thousand dollars, and you don't pay interest. And what do I mean by that? Well, you do pay interest, but you're paying it to yourself. So let's just say you have a 401k loan is five percent interest, and for simplicity, you borrow fifty thousand dollars. So you're paying, let's just for simplicity, twenty five hundred dollars a year in interest, right? Yeah. Um, So now you're putting in twenty five hundred dollars of interest. Now even if you got no growth on that money. Your 401k balance you're, would be worth $5,250 or 50, uh, $52,500 after the first year if you pay the entirety back. You borrow $50,000, you're going to pay 5% of interest, you're going to pay the whole thing off in a year, you got no growth on it, you're going to have $52,50 in there after the end of the year. That's a fact. So that $2,500 of interest is your money, not the bank's. So you are ahead of the game. By 5%. No one can debate that. That's absolutely true. Now, could you have done better in the market? Yeah, maybe. You could have also done worse. You could have done worse. The market could have gone down 10%. The market could go up 10%. I mean, that's the risk of borrowing against your 401k. If the market works uh, in a good way, you'll be, you'll, your interest at 5% might be in or deficient relative to what you could have received in the market. Uh, conversely, if the market went against you, you have five, 52500 in there, where you might be sitting on 40000 if you left the money in the market. And we just don't know. And any given year is a crapshoot about what the markets are going to do. Uh, se- secondly, you are using that money presumably to pay off higher interest debt, credit cards, student loans, or something like that. So not only are you paying yourself that 5% interest, but you're also stopping the payment to another institution. A 5% interest. So I'm not paying you 2,500 bucks, Mr. Banker. I'm paying myself 2,500 bucks. That's a $5,000 differential right there. So you are better off from being able to borrow from your 401k to pay off other debt. And I just, and it's just really not debatable, but people try to debate this all the time. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason why you'd want to. There are two reasons why you won't. Actually, is is one is that uh, if the, the, the durable power of attorney situation is one that a 401k provider can be a pain in the arse. And what that simply means is, in my book, Strategic Money Planning: Eight Ways, Eight Easy Ways to Get Your Financial House in Order. Um, I talk about this about how you, if you have an accident and you're, and someone, your spouse means access to your cash, Um, and you're not dead. You're just uh, incapacitated somehow. How does that person get access to your cash if they don't have a durable power of attorney? And the answer is they can't. A durable power of attorney is a power of attorney that survives incapacity. It survives incapacity. So what that means is if you're incapacitated, you have assigned privileges to XYZ person to be able to access your financial affairs while you're incapacitated. An IRA, generally speaking, like a USA, you would pre-fill a durable power of attorney in advance. You'd have a notarized. And that way, USA would say, hey, Josh, you're incapacitated. You've already given Charlotte the right to act on your behalf. I'm telling you, it's pretty important. It's not going to happen to many people. But when it does, I'm telling you, having a durable power of attorney is critical. And that way, that has already been approved. That way, Charlotte doesn't have to jump through hoops while I'm sitting in a hospital bed with IVs coming out all over the place and can't remember who I am. She's already got that situated and squared away. Now, a 401k provider is, ve- I just haven't seen that many, if any, work very easily with the uh, the attorney in fact, i.e. my wife or your husband or wh- whoever would be. And because of that, it is a pain for a uh, the employee's spouse to act on your behalf if you're incapacitated. And secondly on that, Not only is it a pain, uh, but a lot of times they just won't let you do it. They just won't. And so the second part of this, when you die, the 401k doesn't have to give you the same liberal ways to access the cash in there. This is going to be confusing, but I die with a 401k. I'll leave it to my wife, Charlotte. A lot of 401k providers are going to say you have to do one of two things. Roll it to your own IRA or you have to take it out with a lump sum. Or within five years. They don't allow you to stretch it over the course of her life expectancy. And an IRA does. IRA lets you do that. A 401k, they just wanna be relieved of the assets. So a lot of times they'll say, here are your options. And if you look at the Thrift Savings Plan to the government, it's a perfect example of the horrific options that the survivor has. It's just not much. So the options on a lot of 401ks are pretty stringent when it comes to liberalization of an IRA. An IRA gives you a lot to the heirs on be able to stretch it out over their life expectancy as opposed to taking a lump sum. And a lump sum distribution on an IRA or 401k can be a tax nightmare. Oh, I think I wrote a book on that, the tax bomb in your retirement accounts, <laughs> How the Roth IRA can help you deal with that. So at the end of the day, I advocate rolling your previous 401k to your new one uh, because while you're alive, it's gonna be hard to beat that uh, for sure in terms of your ability to have access to it, your ability to borrow from it, your ability to just kind of consolidate one account. Um, But for your heirs, it's easier to have an IRA. It's just all there's to it. All right. Uh, Doug asks, how are financial planners usually paid? Oh, man, (laughs) this is a pet peeve of mine. Another reason I want to do this uh, episode. All right. So a lot of financial planners nowadays are paid from what's called assets under management, A-U-M. And uh, that simply means that you give them 100,000 bucks and they're going to charge you 1% to manage your money. That's $1,000 a year. You give them a million dollars, they're going to charge you $10,000 a year to manage your money. That's 1% a year. So that's how they're paid. I'd say the vast majority of advisors are paid like that. Very, very few people are paid by commissions anymore. Um, The groups I'm part of, XY Planning Network. NAPFA, National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, you can't receive commissions and be part of these groups. And, and frankly, I think that's somewhat unfortunate, but I mean, I get what they're trying to do because I do not think commissions are evil. Inherently, I think commissions actually are much, much more cost effective for the average client than paying those AUM fees. I actually I, I at this stage, I'm not managing money. I, I really don't want to manage money because I think the AUM fees take away the actual good financial planning that is done. A lot of people say I'll manage your assets for one percent, and I'll throw in financial planning as a freebie, as if it's a side note. And actually, it's not. Financial planning should always be front and center. The primary reason you're engaging a financial planner is full fledged financial planning. If the primary reason you're engaging a financial planner is investment management, I'd ask, I challenge that, because I frankly I don't see a huge value in hiring a financial planner or a financial advisor or investment consultant if all you need is financial uh, investment management. I just don't see it. Doesn't mean it's not there for some. And I will hear all the time, I don't manage your investments in order to beat the market. I manage investments for behavioral advice. And that's that's a new cliche anymore. Uh, basically, you're going to make big mistakes. I'm going to keep you from making big mistakes. I frankly just don't see it. I, I get this a lot. They used to we used. To, I used to actually in back in my ugh, silly days. There's something called Dalbar, D-A-L-B-A-R, Dalbar. And they did this study or do the study each year. Has since been debugged more times than not. But it said basically the average investment returns 10 whatever and the average investor returns 3 percent. It's just been debunked. That's simply not true. Morningstar did a similar study. The average investment return is a lot more narrow, though, say five percent. The average investor returned four percent. Um, now I do believe there's some validity to there, and I think so because of fees. <laughs> they don't they Morningstar won't say that explicitly, but they could say easily that uh, if he's factoring fees or take out fees, the average investment and the average investor would be a heck of a lot closer to each other. You throw that 1% fee in there though, and uh, magically the uh, average investment outperforms the average investor. Now, what a lot of people take away from this is say, oh, that just shows you that investors make mistakes. They buy when the market's hot and they sell when the market's low. And you know, I've been doing this over 20 years. I've seen that on occasion, um, but not very often. It's just, I just don't. Now, some people, I remember in 2010, there's a guy I came across who bought everything in gold, which is the absolute worst possible time to do that. And uh, you know he's he lost, I don't know, sixty percent, three quarters of his portfolio, um, and that's bad. But he wasn't listening to me anyway. I mean, that's a fact. I could tell him all day long, don't do that. But he he was doing it on his own. I mean, he drove the bus and he can do whatever he wants with it, his money. And I think at the end of the day, the vast majority of retail clients are like that. The ones that are going to. Um, you need the behavioral advice that financial planners say that they charge for are not going to engage financial planners to begin with. They're just not. They're going to do it on their own. They're going to buy gold. They're going to buy real estate. They're going to buy, buy, buy. They're not going to engage in a financial planner. And so I think some of those numbers at Morningstar and certainly the Dalbar study are skewed. But again, Dalbar has been debunked. Um, so financial planners get paid for assets under management. Frank, I just go to my YouTube channel. Uh, you can find easy life, Vanguard life strategy funds. Just throw it in there, one stop shop. I think the, the cost costs one tenth of one percent. It was called ten basis points, and you're you're fine. Now there's a bunch of different life strategy funds from aggressive to conservative. You'd have to choose which one is more appropriate to you. But I I just I, this I don't see the value in hiring a financial planner to offer paid investment advice for the one percent assets under management fee. I just don't see it. Now, what, how do I get you paid? Because I'm a financial planner. I got work. Um, I charge a fee for financial planning. And I, this is how I'm hoping the industry goes more, too. I know we're trying to with kicks and, streams, kicks and screams, but slowly but surely, more and more financial planners are offering uh, planning service by the hour or by the task or as a one-on-one financial engagement for six months to a year. And that's the way I do it. I so say, you're paying me X. You know, $500 for a one hour, a two hour consultation. We'll just go over everything you have or 1500 bucks for six months on a six month retainer. And I'll tell you what you should do and you can do it. That's that simple. I'll even help you do it to some degree. But at the end of the day, it's on you to engage this stuff. And I hope more and more financial planners do that. So you absolutely, uh, Doug, you know exactly uh, what you're getting. If you do do financial planning as opposed to I charge one percent, and just think about that too the whole one percent thing. What if you don't have any money? Well, if you have forty thousand bucks in a checking account and your doctor just got out of residency or whatever it's called, well, how are you going to pay for financial planning services? This is the only way the financial planner gets paid is charging for assets? You can't, stupid. And so, you know, I just it's uh, the, the numbers have to change, and I think slowly they are. But it's a very lucrative place for a lot of financial planners who, you know, managing you know million, hundred million dollars and charging 1%, one percent. That's a million dollars a year of revenue they're receiving for not doing that much work. And they're receiving it from you, the end investor. And I just I, I don't like that. Can't lie to you. All right. All right, see, so, so Lionel says, What is who is liable for the taxes of a deceased individual if the estate doesn't have the funds? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, I don't know that. That's a good question. If the state doesn't have the funds and there are taxes, I'm just trying to think if they're I mean, if the state, I guess a state can't be settled. So let's just say the estate, but I mean, I don't even know how that works. So if I received an, an IRA in my in my mom's estate, for instance, I have to pay the taxes for it. My mom's estate does not, I do. The recipient has to. Um, and that's called IRD, income, re- re- uh, income with respect to decedent. IRD is a horrific tax that I'd have to pay. It not, has nothing to do with the estate. The only way I could see, it doesn't have the funds, the taxes. I just don't see how that could happen. I, I mean, I'm sure there's a way, but like in Massachusetts, for instance, you got a million dollar estate exemption. So anything over a million dollars is subject to Massachusetts estate tax. Well, I mean, if they have a net worth of over a million, that means they have an asset that has a value there that you'd have to liquidate to sell. I just don't know how to do that because if your net worth is below a million, and again, net worth is assets minus liabilities, I don't I don't know how you I don't know how you get that. Uh, sorry about my phone. I don't know how you get that with the estate having a tax if there is no net worth where you could liquidate something? That's a good question. I don't don't know the answer to that. I'm just trying to think out loud here. Um, I don't know. So I have to think about that. And that's, that's interesting to me. Now, when it comes to the tax or the debts that you have, so you have a debt on the mortgage, the bank will have to collect it uh, absolutely uh, before it can be liquidated or before it can, the deed can transfer from the deceased to the, a descendant. All right. So the, the deed would have to be cleaned up. as It's called the deed of trust where the bank puts a lien on the deed. And before that deed of trust can be removed, uh, the bank has to be paid. So you'd have to liquidate the house or come up with the cash. That's not an estate tax. That's just a mortgage, a debt that the decedent had when he was alive that he took to the grave with him, but it doesn't get wiped away. So I don't know. Good question. I don't know the answer. Um, what is a good as Larry says, what is a good age to raise a contribution percentage of a 401k? You know, that's that's uh that's contingent on your cash flow. A good age to raise a contribution percentage of a 401k, uh, it's just it really everything's contingent on cash flow. Don't raise it if you can't pay for it, i.e., if you're taking on debt for sure. Um, yeah, I, good. You know, I, obviously, you want to have enough in your four hundred one k to take advantage of the match. So, if you're not taking advantage of the match that your employer provides, if they do provide one, well, you want to take advantage of that now, absolutely. And so that that would be the big thing. All right. So uh, I saw something here. Can you collect social security if you run an all cash business? And that's Doug asked this again. The answer is yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the drawback. Is if you're running an all-cash business um, and it's all under the table, essentially, uh, you, I guarantee you're not paying your Social Security tax. You're not paying FICA. And so <laughs> you would get Social Security on your previous 35 years or 10 uh, years. So basically what happens in Social Security, just to reiterate this, is how they figure out your Social Security payments. they take your top 35 years of earnings, they index them for inflation, They add them all up and they divide by four hundred and twenty. That is your average index monthly earnings (AIME). Then from that, they get your PIA, which is based, which is how much you will get at your full retirement age. All right, PIA is your primary insurance amount. So we'll just say your full retirement age is sixty-six. So that will be your your PIA will be two thousand dollars. That's sixty-six. So can you collect that if you're running an all cash business? Yeah, absolutely. If you've been running an all-cash business your whole life, though, you haven't paid your 40 quarters of into the Social Security system. So the answer is absolutely not. You've got to pay. You've had to have been in the system for 40 quarters or 10 years of work in order to get Social Security benefits. And so if you've been running an all-cash business and you haven't paid to FICA, you're not going to get any benefits. If you've been running an all-cash business and you've only been making $25,000 a year as taxable Social Security, then, yeah, you're going to get paid. It just won't be much because you've eliminated how much taxes you pay into the system. And that's only fair. You don't pay the tax in the system, you should not collect. That's just all there is to it. I, I, there's no other way around that. So it really depends on if you have the 35 years, uh, or I should say the 10 years, 40 quarters of Social Security that you paid into it, if the answer is you have, then A, you will get social security. If the answer is you have, but it's been minimal because most of your money has been under the table, tips or whatever, uh, then, again, you'll be minimal uh, for social security there as well. Uh, Roth IRA for someone who's 16. Yeah, I, absolutely. All right. Let's see what else I want to talk. It, is by term <laughs> This is funny. Is by term and invest rest dead? Oh, man, that's funny. Um. <laughs> I laugh at that because everyone and their mom talks about buy a term and invest the rest. And man, it works so great on paper. Just when it comes to reality, I've very, 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 really rarely seen that actually happen. Cost me 50 bucks a month for a term. Cost me $250 a month for a perm. Permit policy be a whole life for universal life. Uh, I'll take that $200 a month and invest it in a mutual fund. And over 30 years, I'll be ahead. Yeah, absolutely. It's not dead in theory. In practice, has it never, never done. No one's ever done it. I mean... I, John Bogle probably did. The vast majority of people don't. Why? Because life, they got kids, they got, you know, they got to get braced on their kids. They had a stroke, blah, blah, blah. It just doesn't happen that much. So the answer to uh, Navani's question, no, bi-term and rest is not dead. Um, but it certainly has never been nearly to the extent of what the, uh, what's the word, uh, Not the perpetrators, the the proponents of the theory suggest. suggest. I have yet to see that in reality. Anecdotal evidence, of course, um, but I just haven't seen it. Uh, What should I do to buy low index funds in a DIY way without the help of a a financial advisor? Just go to Vanguard. Vanguard Vanguard.com, Schwab.com. Schwab.com has that uh, Schwab Intelligent Portfolio. It's free, has no fees at all. The index funds in there have no fees. It's incredible. Now, everyone say, yeah, but they have 7% of your assets in cash. I don't have any problem with that. Cash is an asset, my friends. Cash is an asset. 7% in cash is not – I just – I don't get why people are all negative on that. Cash has a value. If it has a value, it's an asset, for heaven's sake. So Schwab's intelligent portfolio, man, I love it. You should do that for sure uh anton asks why did banks give you so much less return than you can get with index funds that's way 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 too broad uh banks there's just i i see what he's saying here is i go to the bank i get a cd and i can get an index fund and but you just can't make the comparison that's apples to oranges a bank can give an index fund for sure of course they're going to charge you more for it in terms of commissions or expenses but you know banks don't have to i mean you can go to a bank and get an index fund absolutely and so that they're just not that's not a good comparison there um what can be done to bring back pensions long-term employment yeah i don't know about that uh what was your top learning here's a good one again another um question here and this is probably the last one i'm gonna ask these these two same guy asked these two so what was your top learning from 2008 and 2009 meltdown is not to have debt and this is uh S- S- sour Gupta, Saurabh Gupta, is just not to have debt. Debt is the, uh, is the bane of an existence when you are facing a financial crisis. And ironically, debt is what got you to face the financial crisis to begin with. So not have debt. Oh, but I need a mortgage for tax deduction. No, no, you don't. You don't need a mortgage for tax deduction. Uh, that's absolutely incoherent to me. And people argue that all the time. You don't need the mortgage for tax deduction. You are losing money by having a mortgage, even if you get to write some of it off. Ah! Uh, oh, but I, need, I can invest, um, you know, my market will do, the market will do better than my mortgage payment. No, that if you believe that, then you better go buy, borrow 100% loan of value, which banking term means you are leveraged to the hill on your home. Your house is worth 250,000 bucks. That means you borrow $250,000 and you put it on the stock market. If you're so convinced of that, then that's what you should do. Go leverage your house 100% to the market, to the bank, and take that two hundred fifty thousand from your loan that they give you, and they not going—they aren't going to give you hundred percent loan value either, by the way. And put them in the stocks. That would only make sense, and that no one does that because they know it's silly. It's, it's, the leverage will eat you alive at some point. Do some people make big bucks on leverage? Yep, and it's all luck. And don't put your financial well-being into the luck. Uh, what's the most underrated financial planning advice, which is highly effective? Hmm. Um, that's actually a real good question. Most underrated financial planning advice, which is highly effective. I think, um, A is paying off debt. But we just talked about that. So I want to expand on that a little bit. Um, I think it's not looking at the, it's it's actually thinking that the tax code, what you have today is all you need to concern yourself with, i.e. tax deferrals. I think tax deferrals are way overrated and IE Roth IRAs or even non-taxable account or non-qualified accounts are underrated. And what I mean by that is everyone thinks defer, 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 don't pay any tax until later. And that, I mean, at some point you're going to pay tax on that. And when that tax is due, it has an effect on everything else in terms of social security, Medicare premiums, and qualified dividends, your surviving spouse. I mean, there's so many things that happened with taxation in the future, where if you just paid a little bit more today, you could avoid all that in the future. And I I think it's underrated. I wish more people would um, not get so caught up in the 401k craze, the IRA craze, the tax deferral craze, and instead look at the reality as the world as it is for what they might need liquid assets today, but then the taxes that they have in the future. I I really believe that the Roth IRA is the most underrated thing in financial planning. And I wish people would use it more, um, but I just it's hard to change people's thoughts when they've been brainwashed in this propaganda of tax deferral, tax deferral, tax deferral. Lastly, if you have a 401k, you should tax defer it up until the point that your employer provides a match. That's free money. I will never argue that. If your employer gives you 3% match, you should take advantage of 3% match. But you shouldn't do anything more than that, in my opinion. You should do the Roth IRA. Now, every situation is different or the Roth 401k. Every situation is different. But just in my opinion, for the average Joe out there, take advantage of the 401k that you have. And then any money on top of that that you want to contribute, either do it to a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k. And I just I that is the most underutilized financial planning advice there is other than pay down debt. All right, my friends, I hope this helps. Um, Our song of the day today is going to be one from John Mayall. All Your Love. I just went through my Amazon list because I have tons and tons of songs. I just clicked on, I just scrolled and it hit. It's almost like a, uh, what is it called? The uh, the the tables, you know, the uh, round tables that, man, the craps, you know, rolling the dice. And I just, okay. And I came up with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, All Your Love. The old uh, early 60s blues rock roll that they got from the uh, you know the blacks in Mississippi Delta and you know, obviously Detroit, whatnot. You know, I was going to tell you too, by the way, the, the tribute that Rush Limbaugh did to Aretha Franklin yesterday was absolutely incredible. And it wasn't just solely to her, but Rush was talking about this one neighborhood in Motown in Detroit and all these incredible, incredible musicians that just came from this one neighborhood. Smokey Robinson, Marvin Gaye, all these people, people I never heard of. And I just... Man, you think about the talent that was in Detroit and just that Motown sound. Oh, my goodness. You know, some of it got a little bit beyond me in terms of just a, a little bit too, uh, I don't know. Some of that stuff is just, it's just, I mean, it is just incredible music without question. You know, the whites from England, you know, like Jimmy Page and, you know, and uh, Led Zeppelin, all those guys who, who took all the songs, Eric Clapton even took a lot of the songs from the blacks in America. And they advanced in Elvis, uh, is wonderful. Um, and, and some of it kept some of the soul there, but it's just not the same, you know, a guy from London as a guy from Detroit or Mississippi. I just, man, some of that music just, it's, it's amazing. What Rush was saying is that you got to listen to it on AM because once they did the production where you can get on CD, it's just not the same. You got to listen on AM. You can, you know, it's a lot more soulful, a lot more powerful in terms of the, uh, the actual way you hear it like it was made for that and you can just kind of go i'm 48 so i wasn't born in the 60s but it kind of takes you back in time to say man this is the way the music was back then with all its soul when well, the production value was a whole lot less than it is today because a lot of times now they can make any song sound just over the top produce and that takes away some of the raw energy you no know, other way around that but i just I, man anyway so going back to john mayall on the blues breakers yeah i got that uh the disc set that he that he did and is good, um, it, it just and again a lot of that blues was was taken not taken like stolen, but is attributed to the to the original um, musicians of the past where the were the black folks and just in America just man some of the best music ever and and you just hear the pop today. And I know everyone says this, and you just think about the soullessness of it. I man, it's sad actually. And then you hear about. Even the musicians in England trying to replicate that soulfulness of the uh, of the blues and Motown, and it's just it's not quite there. It's still pretty good, but it's just not quite there. But anyway, good song by John Mayall. Maybe next time we'll do some uh, some old cream because some of that old cream's that was just fantastic. And the Yardbirds, oh man, just good stuff across the board. But uh, that's what we you know it t- unfortunately did. It took whites to bring that music to the forefront. Because there's so much discrimination back there, and you just think of all the musicians. You know, we know James Brown, we know Aretha Franklin, but how many others were out there who never got a shot? And just how bad that was for our society. I mean, never mind baseball. um, You know, Satchel Paige and whatnot. Just never mind the guys who had to play in the Negro League. Just oh man, just the the insane insanity of discriminating against people just based on their skin color how much chops they could have brought to the table if we only let them it's sad it breaks your heart and we're seeing that now even i mean you know here you got a guy like Ben Carson i mean how many Ben Carsons are out there today you know going to learn become the surgeon that he is and it's not that it is discrimination against blacks from uh, jim crow laws anymore it's the exact opposite that if he acts this way he's a sellout and i just it's horrible man it's horrible if you can't to be a doctor, saving lives—I just I find it sad how much you know groupthink there is uh, in any society. That if you go against the grain, you know you're weird, you're selling out, and we can't do that. And how many people, the talent and skill set, we just leave behind because of that groupthink? It's uh, it boggles the mind. Obviously, you know, selling telling the up and coming Ben Carson—he's a sellout. is not the same as Jim Crow and segregation. I get that, but it's still sad it's still sad. So anyway, hope you enjoyed the podcast. As always, go to heritagewealthplanning.com for more episodes. Go to youtube.com slash heritagewealthplanning, and you will see, oh man, th- hundreds of videos I've done there. And, uh, and if you have any questions, thoughts, or concerns, just you know, let me know at josh at com. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time.